0: So fun. I, I, I am, I, like Maher said, I'm, I'm so encouraged uh, by the generosity of, this, of the people in this room. It is so fun, I mean, to see what, what kind of comes of us going, well, what if we gave a little bit above and beyond? What would God do? And some of you have been down and hung out with Pastor Daniel and uh, been uh, at his church. He's actually, he's actually just like Mariners, is a network of four, you know, four church campuses. Um, Pastor Daniel has 15 church campuses that he's been able to plant, and he's continuing to work on more and more. His goal is to plant 50 by the time he's done. Um, so he's a very, very ambitious, super, super talented, very gifted, very gentle guy. And um, being able to, to be a part of that, that breakfast club program that they have, where they feed hundreds of kids each morning before they go to school, they might have a nutritious breakfast. It is changing the way the teachers are reporting back to Daniel, how much of a difference it's making in their own kids, in their classroom performance and the behavior, all that stuff, just a breakfast. So that's part of what you're about. I mean, that's what you're helping to contribute, is making a real difference in that community. So very cool. Um, good to be with you guys. I, um, this is uh, Memorial Day weekend, as Kim already said, and, you know, as we're making plans and we're talking about stuff, and uh, I was, we're outside yesterday, and we're, we're, you know, overwatering our lawn, and we're, you know, splashing the kids and our dog, and they're, everyone's running around, and right across our front door, we live on a, on a green belt, so right across from our little, you know, there's no street there, it's just another house right there, and um, my kids are asking why our neighbor has a, a black flag that says POW on it, and M-I-A, and I said, well, that's because Susie's dad was a soldier when she was about your guy's age. You know, he disappeared when he was fighting, and they haven't seen him again. And so when we talk about Memorial Day, we're talking about people like Susie and, and Steve's, uh, well, Susie's, Susie's dad, who didn't come back. So we had this, for the first time, I think really for my kids, they began to understand, like, well, oh, this is what Memorial Day is all about. So as much as, you know, it's, it's a great weekend. I love that we get an extra day to hang out. Uh, kids are out of school. And it was a reminder to me, just like, this is what we're about on Memorial Day. And so, um, so very much appreciate and understand in a new way, as I'm explaining to my own kids about Memorial Day, what this is all about, what this weekend's all about. Um, so very good to be with you guys. We're wrapping up our series called Christian. A lot of you guys have been here throughout the whole series. You, maybe you came right after Easter as we started, to, we started into this series. And it was really kind of a, a series geared towards all of us who have either growing up in the church with some kind of confusion or assumptions about what it means to be a Christian, uh, and also geared towards those of us who are investigating Jesus and maybe are pretty excited about Jesus but are kind of skeptical about all of his followers. And so we've kind of taken a, some time, eight weeks, to kind of unpack what that's all about. Uh, we said this, just to, in case, just to kind of catch you up, so that the word Christian isn't used by Jesus. He didn't follow, he didn't ask his people to come follow him and be Christians. He asked his people to come follow him and, and be disciples, And we said that the word Christian is used only three times in the Bible, and never once is it the Christians who get together and go, let's come up with a team name. You know, let's call ourselves Excelsior. No, no. Christians, like they never have a team meeting and decide on a name. That's not how it works. What happens is the people around them keep hearing them say the word Christ, and they go, I think that might be their term, so we're going to call them Christians. And the Christians eventually sort of adopted it, but it wasn't a name they chose initially. We also know that we've been saying that, the, the way that one of the ways they were actually identified, one way they actually chose to identify themselves, was as this phrase, the followers of the way. That there was something peculiar about who they were and how they acted and how they lived and the scandalous way in which they included people who were otherwise outsiders. The, the way in which they cared for the lost and the lonely and the sick and the abandoned and the way that they sort of crossed all the different social strata of economics and race and everything else. There's this kind of unique group and they were the followers of the way. It has been a very, very good series, lots of great questions coming out of it, people having conversations with me, with each other, emails we're getting, people just saying that they've been learning a ton from this series, and it's been really cool to kind of break some of those old stereotypes, hopefully, and maybe make some new ones that are a little bit more positive, perhaps. So this is the last week in the series, I'm excited to get into it, why don't we do this, let's pray, and then we'll jump into today's message, so let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are in our midst, that you are among us, that you would choose um, to be here among us that your love for us is something we can barely even begin to get a handle on. But Father, we're grateful that over the course of the past couple of weeks, you've hopefully been giving us a picture from most of us, that you are, um, you are unceasing in your love, and that because you have loved us so greatly, we get to be people who also love so greatly. Jesus, as we wrap up the series today, would you become more real to us than ever? As we're challenged by your word, will we be encouraged and hopeful and expectant? Will we be bound together more and more as a family uh, as we hear from you, Jesus? And so, Father, for just a moment, we pause? We ask that you would speak to us in only a way that you can, in words that are beyond words, in the silence, in the stillness of our own, our hearts. And um, so, God, we ask that you would just speak to us in the stillness. Father, if we're to be convinced of anything, might we be convinced of your love for us. And that your intention for this family, this community of people, is that we would not only be loved by you, but that we would love each other with a courageous, bold love. And so, Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, if you want to follow along, you can, you can, if you brought your Bible, you can turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3 will be there. And then if you want to follow along in your outline or you want to follow along on the screen, great. If you brought some digital way to track what we're doing, that's also great. But um, that's where we'll be in a little bit. Um, When I was a kid, many of you know, I was raised by a single mom. And uh, uh, at a pretty young age, I was like, well, I need to do things that are like really boy kind of stuff. Like, you know, I I, I need to do some guy things, you know. I, I don't know how old I was, probably six, seven, eight years old. And so I determined at that age that the most... Masculine thing that a you know seven year old could do would be to join the Cub Scouts, because they did they they tied knots and they 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 went camping, and I was like I got to do the Cub Scouts and they have a uniform and a little scarf and a you wear a hat and I you know I I was all about this so my mom was like okay let's do the Cub Scouts, and it turns out this is I don't know this is just coincidence or whatever else but every like I would say half of my little Cub Scout I think it's called a den half of the Cub Scout den was uh, also kids who had single moms. It just ended up that way. And I think all of us at about the same age were like, we want to do some guy stuff. You know, dad kind of man stuff, whatever that meant. We had no idea what that meant, but we wanted to do that. So all of us are together. And I remember that the bulk of what we did in Cub Scouts Remember, I joined to, like, build a fortress out of pine needles and, you know, learn how, and that's what I joined, I wanted to learn how to do that kind of stuff. Build a bow and arrow out of, you know, a twig in my backyard and shoot a deer. I'd never seen a deer. Uh, But those are the kind of things I imagined us doing. And what we did, every week we got together and we had a little potluck and then we did crafts. I had no, I don't, it's not like I hate crafts, I mean, they're great, but I, lear, I, mean, I learned how to tie a tie, that was, that's an important skill, I use that whenever anybody gets married or they die, that's pretty much when I use that skill, but those are the times, I mean, but I was like, every, we made sailboats and did all these crafts, and I'm like, when are we going camping, and they kept talking, You know, I was like, you know, this is always on the horizon that we're going to go camping. Now, as this is happening, every, every so often, so you have like your little den meeting, and then I think it was once a month you got together for the pack meeting, when all the dens got together and did stuff. And I remember this one guy, and you know, like I'm looking, you have to remember what I'm looking, at. I'm only seven, eight years old, and there's a guy in front talking to everybody, wearing the same uniform that I got on. It's a little bigger, uh, just barely. But there's this guy standing there with the socks and the uniform and everything else, and he's talking about something. And I'm tuning him out because I keep wondering, if you're not saying the word camp, I'm not listening to you. So I'm just kind of falling asleep as this guy's talking to everybody. And he starts, he starts talking about the, getting a subscription to the Boy Scout magazine. Do you guys know what that, anybody Boy Scouts know what the magazine is? It's called Boy's Life. Okay? Now, I'm not totally paying attention obviously, because he didn't say the word camping. So I'm just listening, and uh, uh, what I hear him say is the word boy's life. And what I'm thinking he's saying is, he says, do you want to sign your kids up for boy's life? And what I'm thinking he's saying is, you are going to have your kids make a lifetime commitment to the Cub Scouts. (laughs) Like, I thought I was signing up to be a Cub Scout for the rest of my life. And so my mom's sitting there, and they're all kind of talking with the other parents and stuff, and they're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And I'm like, really? This is a good, wow, I don't know if I'm, ready for this commitment I mean this is kind of a big deal I'm only seven years old and all we do is crafts and boats and I, I don't I mean I want to I mean this is, I don't know if I'm ready for this and, and so sure enough I mom's like do you want to do this and I was like you think this is sensible okay I guess so. and I really did not realize what I was signing I really was worried for the next couple of weeks that I had signed up for my entire life to be a Cub Scout and, and it wasn't until a couple weeks later where the magazine came and I was able to connect the dots like oh oh okay this is just a magazine and soon after I go to my, my mom and I go, Mom, these people, these Cub Scout people, at least our little group, keeps talking about camping and they keep canceling it. They keep making claims that are going wildly unsubstantiated. And if, <laughs> There's some scripture in case you're wondering. There's the, uh, these people are making claims that are going wildly unsubstantiated. I think I want to quit. And I was expecting her to be like, you know, oh, this is a thing. You know, and like, she was like, okay. I'm like, Mom, you don't understand. They're talking, they're, they're, we've never gone camping. I feel like I know how to do all kinds of neat things with popsicle sticks, but I don't know how to camp. I quit. She's like, Okay. They're, Mom, they're, she's like, I get it. I didn't realize it, was not, it wasn't that big of a deal. But the point was this these guys had given me an impression about what they were all about, either well, right or wrong, whether or not they, you know, they had given it or I just assumed. But there was an impression given about what Cub Scouts is all about. And that was totally unsubstantiated by my experience. I think, for a lot of people, this is how they feel about Christianity. There are so many claims that are made by people who are attached to Christianity that there's a sense for a lot of people that's like, wow, there's a lot of claims to me and you keep wanting to recruit me for my whole life, but I don't think everything here is as you say it is. There's supposed to be something here, and that's something is kind of lost. So a lot of people say, I quit. I quit. Some people, I've talked to a lot of you who have kind of, maybe you quit in some way or another pretty early on in your own relationship with God. Maybe you grew up in the church and thought, this is just, you know, Jesus may love me, this I know. But life is really, really hard, and the Christians aren't acting like I think that they claim that they do. Some of you have been looking at the outcome. Maybe you've been invited. You're investigating this stuff. Someone brought you at Easter. Maybe you're just checking it out. But you're like, I'm, I, I'm still not sure about Jesus at all because I, there seems to be these claims made by these Christians and I don't think I totally, I don't think they believe it either. I'm not sure what I'm really getting into. There's a lot of us who are confronted with this idea of quitting. Quitting our faith. Quitting the church. And what I want to do is I want to challenge a little bit of what we think about quitting. About our own perception. If you're someone who belongs to Jesus, you've been walking, following him. What is it that we are responsible for in some way or another in terms of our own relationship with the rest of the world? But also what does it look like for us internally? People who belong to the church. And for those of you who are investigating, some of you are just going to be nodding the entire time. That's how I felt for a long time. Just, yep, that's how I felt. For those of us that are kind of more on the inside, I want you to get a sense of how God might challenge you and challenge us to live a little differently. So here's what it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. Remember, or I'm sorry, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Now, the Apostle Paul's writing a letter here helping a guy figure out how to run his church, how to do some stuff. And he says, hey, remind everybody to do this. In fact, my guess is if you asked anybody in the world What are Christians supposed to be like? They'd give you that list. Uh, They're probably supposed to be, you know, follow the rules, supposed to be obedient, ready to do whatever's good, to not slander anybody, be peaceable, considerate, being gentle. That's what people who belong, they're supposed to be like that. Everybody would say this is kind of how Christians are supposed to be. Only there's an old way, Paul writes about as well. This is the new way. We used to be another way, and now we're this other way. This way, where we're peaceful and obedient and considerate. But there's an old way. And he says, we got to leave that old way behind. Because there's a way in which we want to be known. And it's not the old way. It's this new way. And so this is why he said this in verse 3. He says this. At one time, meaning the old way, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now leave that on the screen for just a second. For so many people, their experience of Christians and the church is way more that this is their reality than the other thing. They say, well, I look at the Christians and here's what they're more about. Foolishness, disobedience, deception. That they're enslaved by all kinds of passion. And that they live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. For so many people, that's their experience of what the church is all about. That in some way or another, this is what we're known for. And you could see why people, if that's their perception, if that is their reality, then what they're saying is, I don't want anything to do with that. Some of you have heard of um, the author Anne Rice. Before there was like vampire novels there was Anne Rice I mean she was like the, the queen of this stuff and as she wrote what's the the, the actual sort of uh, category of writing is called metaphysical gothic fiction which I'd never heard of that as a category of writing I just only knew fiction and nonfiction. that's how li- library savvy I am but she had this metaphysical gothic fiction some of you may have seen the movie Interview with a Vampire came out in like the mid late 90s uh, but this is her stuff she wrote 90 million books uh, and she travels in circles that are incredibly smart people with all the coolest parties and all the, new, you know, all the celebrities you could ever know. This is who she knew and who she walked with. Anne Rice grew up in the church. She grew up in the church and uh, in her own words, she left at a pretty young age violently from the church. About the year 2000 or so, she starts to reengage her faith. And the way she begins to reengage her faith is like this. She starts reading, she's doing some research for a, um, for a new novel she's writing, and it takes place in the first century. And so she's reading about stuff, and she goes, well, you know, the, one of the things I have to cover in this novel is, and I'm sure a lot of you came, by the way, a lot of you probably came to faith in this exact same way. Uh, but she's, she she's doing some research for her novel, and part of what her research involves is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., there's the, the, the siege of Jerusalem, the temple falls, all kinds of stuff goes on. And she says, well, I grew up in the church. I'm pretty sure that, that at least the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the, the, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life primarily, that, we'll look, at, that we'll, look at, we'll look at those guys and see what they had to say about Jesus. And we'll, you know, maybe I'm sure they, they probably mentioned something about the fall of Jerusalem. Well, none of them in any of the writing have anything to do with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So she assumes then, well, then they must have I mean, if they didn't write about it, then it hadn't happened yet, which means their writings have to be more concurrent with Jesus than I thought, because I thought they would be way later. I thought they would have, from stories and myth, they would have written about Jesus hundreds of years later. No, no, they were right at the same time as Jesus. So she starts reading about them based on the validity of their own ey- eyewitness accounts, saying it had to have happened before this thing, meaning they were right there with Jesus, so maybe, maybe there's something to Jesus that I ever thought about. So she starts reading some smart Christian scholar people. And... She chooses to return to faith. She had already quit her faith. She comes back. Here's here's a long quote. I want you to read this. This is from Anne Rice. She says this. He knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He, meaning God, wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. This was his world, all this. He had complete control of it. His justice, his mercy were not our, our justice or our mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing. I didn't have to know how he was going to save the unlettered and the, and the unbaptized or how he would redeem the conscientious heathen who had never spoken his name. I didn't have to know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption or how my hardworking secular humanist friends could, find, uh, could or would receive the power of his saving grace. I didn't have to know why good people suffered agony or died in pain. He knew. And it was his knowing that overwhelmed me. His knowing that became completely real to me. His knowing that became the warp and woof of the universe. By the way, I'm going to use the terms warp and woof all the time now. I don't even know what they mean, but that is, I'm going to use them in a message sometime other than quoting someone. You're going to be like, I remember that. Okay, his knowing became the warp and woof of the universe which he had made. And why should I remain apart from him just because I couldn't grasp all this? He could grasp it. It's a pretty good account of how you came to faith, right? I mean, that's a pretty, that's the way a good writer says it. (laughs) What she says is, of all, of all of her brilliance and all of what she did as a writer and all of what she began to learn, she said, there's one thing I can't understand, God. But he understands. For so many people, the major obstacle to not following Jesus or to not becoming someone who is connected with God is that we don't understand him. And doesn't it make sense that he wouldn't be fully understandable by us? And here's Ann Rice saying, he's so mysterious. He's so beyond me. He's embodied in this person of Jesus. And I don't totally get it, but he does. I don't have to get it. Maybe God should be bigger than my own understanding. And so she begins to walk with Jesus. She did a couple books about the early life of Jesus. She wrote some fictional stuff of the early life of Jesus. She began to sort of walk with Jesus in a brand new way, in a total freshness in her life. And then in July of 2010, she says this. This is from her Facebook. She says this. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, as always, but not to being a Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else quit. I've tried to be a part of this group of people but I quit I can't I can't do it anymore I, I love even if the word even throws I mean it's so I mean again someone who's written you know who's sold 90 million books can say things like quarrelsome hostile on the word disputatious which is the best word next to warp and wolf you'll ever hear in your life <laughs> but we actually looked it up because <laughs> I'm like oh that's someone who likes disputing no no it's someone who's fond of heated arguments Her own impression is someone who returned back to faith, energized by this experience of who Jesus is. And the mystery of God says, I'm trying to figure out how to belong to these people, but they keep enjoying heated arguments. There's this quarrelsome hostility among them, and they've got a reputation that they deserve. Whoa. Some of you who are on the outside, on the fringe, looking in about whether or not you're considering following Jesus or being a part of his family and all that kind of stuff, you just said amen and you've never said amen in your life. Like, oh, amen, that's how I feel. Someone said it. And those of us who belong to Jesus have to be challenged by that idea. The least attractive quality in the church is infighting. There are multiple passages in the Bible where the the early church is coming together and it's a room, a small room, and they're all trying to figure out the different groups of people gathering together, trying to figure out how to be God's people. And over and over again, what the writing says is, you guys, don't have divisions among yourselves. Figure out how to be a family. Because the one thing is, you know, your ability to be together really, really matters because Jesus is made known by his followers to the world. And Anne Rice says, I was connected to his followers, and I had to disconnect from them. She says this, her third quote on the screen My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and will always be, no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. My commitment to Christ remains at the center of, center, heart and center of my life. Transformation in him is radical and ongoing. That I, feel, that I feel now that I'm called to be an outsider for him, to step away from the words Christian and Christianity, is something that my conscience demands of me. What she says is, I can't be connected to these people anymore. I can't do it. I I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be, I want to be outside of all these people. I just want it to be me and Jesus. And when we get to that place, some of us have been there. It drives us to a particular relationship with God, a me and Jesus kind of relationship with God. And we get, we read verses like this and we just, we breathe a little bit of air. It says this, Ephesians 3, 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you. This is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now we stop right there. We love this. If we've had the experience of, I just want it to be me and Jesus. We love this because what we imagine is, we, can, we put that back on the screen real quick? What we imagine is we see this, we look at that and go, man, look at those words. They're so individual. Inner being. strengthen you through power there's some kind of dwelling in your hearts this incredibly personal me and Jesus kind of thing well it's true that God's love for you for us is individual and specific to you and to us but all of the you's that are written in this letter to the church in Ephesus are not singular they're all plural that no matter what we might have thought about our relationship with the church or what we the perception that Christians might have given us or whatever it might be it's still us it's still a fan it's not only an individual me and God me and Jesus kind of thing this is a prayer about the whole church community being bound together not just me and Jesus only We don't come here, worship Jesus, and never talk to anybody else. There's something about the community of people that really, really matters. Keep on reading. Second half of verse 17 says this. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Let me stop right there. You can read this, second half of verse 17 on through 19, without the most critical phrase together with all the Lord's holy people. You can read it without it, and it will make sense if you just want it to be you and Jesus. You can do that. But you miss what it's all about. I pray that you, in fact, if you have your outline at underline, I think I might even be bolded on your outline, but if you you have your Bible, I would... You know, right, I would underline this in your Bible, together with all the Lord's holy people. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, the way God's love is made known isn't just you by yourself. It's you, everybody, you, plural. And yes, God loves you with a specific and individual kind of love. But it is never at the expense of the rest of the family. It is together with all of God's holy people. Can we relate to Anne Rice's quotes? Probably all of us at some point. If you grew up in the church, say, oh, yeah, definitely. I talked to a guy last week who made a first-time decision to, to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus. And he said, I I grew up in the church. I grew up Catholic, and I I remember all this stuff, but it never really sunk into me. And he said, I wanted to choose Jesus. I really wanted to choose Jesus, but I never wanted to be associated. This is what he says, do I never wanted to be associated with those judgmental Christians. He said, I finally found in this church community a reason to say, okay, yes to Jesus. That the power of the people bound together by Jesus, tells his story. That's why it's so critical. Back to Titus, chapter 3, verse 4 says this. But when the kindness and love of, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The one person who could have said, I'm so tired of these people who belong to me. I'm so tired of these people who are connected, this church thing. The only one person who would have been justified in that would have, who would have said, I, I want to quit, would have been God himself. Because those people just keep messing it all up. And yet what we find in this passage is God looks at us and says, you really, really don't have your act together. And you really, really need me. And so I give to you a gift of life at my own cost, my own sacrifice that you might have it. I don't, I'm not quitting on you guys. And then is says this, the kindness and love of our, God our Savior appeared he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, Because of his mercy. I think one of the obstacles to people looking in on the church is that it appears as though Christians have no need for Christ. There's a sense about people looking in the church saying, Christians act like they don't even need Jesus. There's a sense about people who look at the church and say, for the outsiders, for people who are looking in... When you get your act together, we are so glad that you're here. But until then, if you can't kind of put your act together like us, then we're not really sure we want you here. We need, every single person in this room, every single person in the world, we need a rescue from ourselves. We need Jesus because we don't have our act together. You might have heard me say this every so often, but I say, um, you know, this is a group of people who are committed to following Jesus. But none of us does that perfectly and none of us has all the answers. And so we get to journey together. We don't have all the answers. We're committed to figuring it out together as a family. And this is what we're about and we need someone to rescue us who is at work renewing us. Verse eight, this is a trustworthy saying. and And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, notice the order of this. People tend to get this wrong. More often than not, we tend to think we have to do good so that we can receive God's mercy. No, 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 no. Because we are the recipients of God's mercy and grace, God's son, Jesus, would come to rescue us, to pull us to himself, to restore us back to him. Out of that, because that's already true, we get to do good. The Be, Gener- or the, the Be Fearless campaign. All of that stuff isn't because we're trying to win God's favor. It's because we already have it. Now, I want you to notice this. Who are the beneficiaries of the good to which we're called in verse 8? Who benefits? Look at it. These things are excellent and profitable for... Oh, we have to say it. I know it's a little scary. These things are excellent and profitable to. for everyone. That means the person that we don't like at work. That means the person of a different religion in our own community, the person of a different race, the person of a, the person who drives us crazy, our neighbor who, whose cat jumps into our yard or whatever. All of those people, the family member we don't talk to, the person we don't like, whatever, everyone. The beneficiaries of the goodness of what, of what we might sort of produce isn't just our little in-group. It is for everyone. It's almost as if, what well, you get the sense of Paul's talking here, the church really does matter in how it presents itself to everybody else. In fact, we ought to be overly aware, not to the point of faking it by any degree, of our own perception in the world because the good is for everyone. It's for everyone. The recipients of good are not specified. And so it's good that God's people would not be disputatious. That we would say, I'm going to accomplish good. Not because I'm trying to win God's favor, but because I already have it. That everybody in the world would know that we're a community who belongs to Jesus. See, Paul doesn't really give people an out. Like, okay, it can be just you and Jesus, nobody else. He doesn't say, it's, you know, it's fine, why don't you just quit the church, no big deal. You guys can just quit. It doesn't matter. It's just you and God and don't have to ever talk to anybody, be involved in anybody else's life. Because it's like we can't quit it any more than we can quit our family. You know, the church isn't the building. Even when you heard Allison say when when we were singing, she said, let's fill God's house with God's word. God's house isn't the building. God's house is the people who belong to him. The church is the people who belong to Jesus. It's not the building. And Paul says, you need the people who belong to God. You need the people who belong to Jesus. And in, just in case you're worried that there's some kind of guilt about, uh, that's coming out at you, let me just tell you. Let me, let me just ask you, how many churches are there in Orange County? It's one. Only one church. There's no rivalry here. There's no competition. It's, it's people who walk with and belong to Jesus. That's the church. And Paul says you can't live your life apart from the church. From God's, as sometimes the, the Bible describes, the body or the beautiful bride of Christ. Paul gives only one out for people who want to have it just be them and Jesus. It's a kind of a surprising way. Here's his, here's the way he says it in verse 9. But avoid Foolish controversies, and genealo- foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. He says there's so many, there's so many little, ridiculous, futile, pointless arguments that could tear apart a church community. And he says, if someone's stirring up those kinds of things, so damaging are they to the community of people who belong together that we can tell them a few times, then it's like, you know what, it looks like you, only want, you can only be on your own because you're being divisive. How many ridiculous and heated arguments are there in our lives that have been created by the dumbest things? If you were to think back on the, the, like the biggest arguments you've had in the past month or so with people in your life, those of you who are married, you can think about how those arguments got started with your spouse. Generally, it's the dumbest thing that gets those things going. Maybe you heard this week, um, <laughs> it's, 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 I'm laughing, but it's, both people are in jail and they both got wounded. But it's funny. There's a couple who was arguing <laughs> about who the best American Idol contestant is. Did you guys hear the story? And so they got in a fight and stabbed each other. <laughs> they're both, they're both going to live <laughs> and they're both in jail. Because they're arguing about who the best American Idol contestant is. There are stupid things that manage to fuel us into arguments. And Paul says, don't let stupid things undermine what we're doing here in the unity of following Jesus. Now, as a word of warning, you can't just wave the banner of you're being divisive and you're out all the time. In fact, a lot of times people, the people trying to root out divisiveness are being divisive themselves. So we talked about, truth and grace and love and all that. But, but you get the sense here, what he's saying is so serious is the division among the church, the hostility, the quarrelsome, infighting, disputatious sort of, you know, inclination. We have to deal with that seriously because it undermines all of the beauty of the church, of what Jesus wants to accomplish through it. So we don't get to quit the church. But for those of you, who are serious about following Jesus, could say, okay, I'm serious about Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm done with the sort of ridiculousness of Christianity, but I'm not quitting the church. There are some things that are worth us considering that we should quit. There are some things that we go, what should we quit? Because, and I'm only talking to those of you who belong to Jesus. If you're just checking it out, just you can just hear me saying this, and you can agree and nod, but you don't have to, this is for everybody who belongs to Jesus. The, the way that our church is perceived... The way that the community of people who belong to Jesus, it's on us how we're perceived. And so there are some things we have to be very aware of. Already, this church is already so aware of. It's so good. But I just want to reiterate them. So we have to quit a few things. Quitting's hard. It's really tough. I, um, I was at, I, I had a kind of embarrassing moment. I was at my, um, my friend's dad's funeral this on Thursday. Best friend. He was the best man at my wedding. We've known each other since we were three years old. Both of us learned how to ride two-wheel bikes together. And I'm at um, my, my friend's dad's memorial service, and um, I, I totally get the inappropriate, you know, giggles. Like, where I just start laughing, and because you can't laugh, you, know, you feel it more and more. It was the worst. And, you know, in a memorial service, these guys have been to them before, you know you have this contrast between moments of real deep grief and sadness, and then you also have these memories that are pretty funny, or they're kind of light, and they're usually right back and forth with each other if you've ever been to a memorial. And I'm, I have this moment where I'm remembering the story about my friend's dad, and it's, like, incredibly funny, and it's, like, you know, the worst time to have this memory. <laughs> so my friend's dad, he's a uh, he's Polish guy, um, like, from Poland, you know, the whole deal. It's not like he has Polish roots, but, I mean, he's, like, legitimate from, you know, Eastern Europe. And he has all these weird Eastern European sort of habits. Like, he, you know, we just cannot understand him. Like, he always up mayonnaise on everything. We're like, this is just gnarly. Mayonnaise on your French fries is just like, you know, it's like the gnarliest thing. But I remember, and he, was, and he smoked a lot. You know, it's pretty typical, you know. So he would, uh, I remember, this <laughs> one time, this is what got me going. Right, one time, and, he, and his, his sons, my, my buddy and his two brothers, would always give their dad a hard time. Like, Dad, you've got to quit smoking. You know, this is just crazy. And so, you know, he's like, all right, I'll try, I'll try. And he kept trying to do this. So one time, my buddy Jason and I are hanging out. We come into his house, and there's his dad. He's got one of those patches on each arm. <laughs> he's chewing the Nicorette gum. ...and smoking a cigarette at the same time. <laughs> I don't know if you get an A for effort there. That's just, you know, like, I don't know what that means... ...or you just really love nicotine. But it's hard to quit. And yet the, the sort of responsibility... ...there are some things on us, people who belong to Jesus... ...that we have to say, we're going to quit some of those things. Because we want the good to be done for everyone... ...that the picture of Jesus would be made known through us. So maybe... Here's a list. Now, here's what I want you to think. I'm going to give you a list that's for you, collective, but I also want you to think about it for you individually. It's a you, everybody, you, plural, but also you individually. I want you to think about both of these things. So, as I say some of this stuff, maybe we quit. Our fearless dedication, our fierce dedication, I should say, our fierce dedication to image management that maybe one of the things we're being, we ought to quit is this super dedication to making sure everybody thinks we're okay when we're actually a train wreck. Maybe that's damaging. Maybe it's inauthentic. So many of you have unpacked some of that stuff in our rooted experience and said, I'm done playing that image game. Maybe there's a sense for us that we ought to quit our own belief and our own superiority, our better-than-ness of everybody else. It says, well, you know what? We're all people who are in need of Jesus. None of us us have gotten this whole thing figured out. Maybe we ought to quit our belief in our superiority. Maybe there's a sense in us that we ought to quit hoarding our own love. Love for us, like there's not enough to go around. That if we love people, even the strangers, the people that are beyond us, that aren't like us, what would happen then if we started loving those people? Maybe we ought to quit condemning outsiders, people who aren't like us, who don't look like us, who react differently than us, who maybe even are investigating things, but we're not, we, maybe we have a condemnation for them. Maybe we ought to give up or quit our exclusivity. Maybe we ought to quit our materialism. Maybe we ought to quit church consumerism. Maybe we ought to quit apathy, our perfectionism, or fear. What is it for you? You go, it's me. It's on me. I'm I'm telling God's story in my life with the people around me in this community. What am I going to quit? And then I think the other side of that coin is what is it that we would never, under any circumstances, ever quit? Well, we'd never quit seeking God. We'd never quit being about Jesus. We'd never quit... A a, a courageous dedication to hospitality, which if you're with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about hospitality. The, The Greek word is philoxenia, which means love for the outsider, the stranger, love for the person we don't know. Maybe we'd never quit that. Maybe we'd never quit learning. We'd never quit generosity. We'd never quit learning what it means to be full of truth and grace. What is it that you go, I'm never gonna quit this. Because we get to be the beautiful bride of Christ. The way Jesus is going to be made known in our world is through us. Us individually and us corporately. What does it mean? Would you close your eyes? Let's consider these things for a moment and then we'll respond together in prayer and in song. What does it mean for you as you think about these these things? What are those things that you go, I'm never under any circumstances going to quit some of these things? I'm never going to quit being a loving person, as hard as it might be. I'm never going to quit inviting people to join our family here. I'm never going to quit being a welcoming, inviting person. I'm never going to quit seeking God. I'm never going to quit meeting God. Is it that God's calling you to actually quit? Is it condemnation? Is it fear? Is it superiority? Is it image management? Jesus, we are people who are in desperate need of the ongoing work of your spirit in our own lives. We are people who are the recipients of your good and beautiful mercy that would give to us whole, rich life. Father, we confess that at times we have created and contributed to a perception that many people have about the church, which is a judgmental, elitist, exclusivist group. Father, we just confess those things. Jesus, would you help us to respond to you in truth, in authentic worship that says our whole life being bound together as people who belong to you would be the picture of your great love for us, that the beneficiaries of your love for us would be everyone. And so, Father, as we respond to you in singing and in prayer, Would you hear the voices of your children who want to know you and walk with you more deeply? In your name, Jesus, amen. Here's what we're going to do. If you want to receive, we're going to respond together in some singing and also some prayer, and I want you to do this. If you're someone who either needs to confess something, maybe need to write it down and place it in our prayer wall over there, you want to pray with someone else, our team will be up here, love to pray with you. But we're going to get a chance to sing together and respond to who God's called us to be as his family, singing Setting our own prayers to music. And so, would you stand as we sing together? This is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart. I worship. So